0: DBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info.
1: Thank you for joining us again for Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, we mark an important anniversary uh, today. It was one year ago today that the first batches of COVID 19 vaccine were delivered to the state and began distrib- and distribution of them. Shots in arms began. A year later, uh, we still have only 52% of the people of this state fully vaccinated. We're approaching 1.3 million cases of COVID, and that's an underestimation, most public health officials feel. And we've reached almost 26,000 people who have died. Uh, side tes- a, sa- a sad testament uh, to the fact that uh, vaccinations have become so highly uh, politicized. But it's worth mentioning today uh, that this is the time. Get vaccinated, get a booster shot, uh, because we're hearing more and more that the Omicron uh, variant is headed our way, and it's only going to spread the uh, virus even further. That said, let's get right to our panel. It's Tuesdays, which means my partner on the show today, senior reporter of the AJC, Tamar Hallerman. Tamar, why didn't we learn until I read it today that you won an NABJ Salute to Excellence Award, along with Tia Mitchell uh, and Ernie Suggs, your colleagues, for work you did paying tribute to John Lewis. Congratulations.
0: Oh, thank you so much. We worked really hard on, on the package of stories we delivered at the aftermath of his death, and it's awesome to to get recognized for that. It was a huge team effort.
1: We should say those initials stand for the National Association of Black Journalists, so congratulations uh, to you. We're joined by GPB News' own public policy reporter, Riley Bunch, today. Riley, um, very quickly, you have a piece up right now that talks about uh, the end of a very important uh, COVID-related subsidy for many uh, f- families. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, kind of just like the vaccines, things are coming full circle right now. And tomorrow is the last payment of the COVID-era Child Tax Credit Program for families, which has gone out to about 1.2 million Georgia households. So if Congress doesn't pass an extension of that next month, these families won't get their payments.
1: And you talked to a number of uh, mothers, particularly, who are really troubled by what this means to them. It's, we're going to post a link to it on our social media uh, uh, so that people can read uh, what you've done. We're joined also by Renee Alegria, the CEO of Mundo Hispanico Digital. Uh, Renee, coming to the end of another year. It's been a good year for Mundo Hispanico from everything you've told us.
3: Yeah, no, it's been a, a, a great year across the board. Um, our 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 readership is growing. Um, and, you know, I mean, the, the Hispanic place in America's uh, recent history and the future is solidified. So we like to give voice to that, for sure.
1: A little later in... A little later in the show, we're going to talk a bit about what's happening, what some people uh, in the Democratic Party fear is happening, happening with Hispanic voters. And we'll get to that as the show goes on. But uh, tomorrow, let's start with the story uh, that um, uh, popped in the AJC uh, last night. Butch Miller, who is an important Republican leader, Senator pro tem of the state Senate, is uh, filed, has filed a bill which eliminates drop boxes in uh, elections in Georgia. He says that it's time for them to be uh, retired because uh, we should be returning to a pre-pandemic normal of voting in person and that removing drop boxes will help rebuild the trust that has been lost. Trust that has been lost through the big lie about the election, of course. But what does this mean if people lose the opportunity to use drop boxes?
0: Well, it means that a really popular form of voting, especially for a lot of voters in Democratic uh, counties around Metro Atlanta, um, a method preferred by a lot of voters of color, um, liberal voters especially, could go away. Um, This, of course, was a huge topic of discussion as the legislature was passing the new voting law. Uh, But a a piece of messaging that Republicans used over and over again that they seem to be quite proud of is that it, it kind of enshrined these drop boxes into law. You know, Democrats criticized them in a lot of urban counties because of this new law. Drop boxes would be eliminated to a couple locations. You could only put it inside the um, elections office. It was only open from nine to five. So they they complained that that Republicans were cutting off access to it. But Republicans said, hey, we're enshrining these drop boxes into law for the first time. Um, and so it, it'll be kind of an interesting change of pace if, if this proposal ends up being considered this year or next year. Riley? No, this next year. <laughs>
1: Next year.
2: (laughs) Let's not forget also that Butch Miller is in a highly contested race for lieutenant governor, right? And he does not have Trump's endorsement in that race. So it's not surprising to see him making kind of these these pre-files of legislation ahead of the session to curry to this deep red base. And I I also think it's important to note that this is not the only – suggested change we're going to see to the giant sweeping elections bill that was passed last session, right? It's going to be very interesting to see when everyone sat on it for a little bit to come back and see what changes that they want to make. I know Ralston's talked about making more election changes too. And I think it's also important to mention the other group of people that is going to be severely impacted by changes to the election system, which is local elections officials and poll workers who have gone through change and change and change and change over the last two. Years, and they're going to see more changes the next um, election.
1: Um, well, Renee, what's what, what, one of the things that you you have to put in this into the context of is the fact that the mantra when Republicans were promoting Senate Bill two hundred two, which they passed and changed the election laws, was uh, the the law uh, makes it easier to vote, harder to cheat. And and what I think is interesting about this is Butch Miller's contention, number one, that eliminating drop boxes will stop people's mistrust of elections. But more important, that he believes the way everybody should be voting is in person, even as there are states across the country that are trying to make it really easier for people to vote by doing mail-in balloting, online balloting and the like. Apparently, uh, some of the Republicans in Georgia think the only way to vote legitimately is in person.
3: Yeah, I, I think that uh, uh, you know it will stop people mistrusting um, the the election process that look like Butch Miller, and I think that's kind of the key. The other folks uh, that are are not Butch Miller uh, and his base do trust the process. I, I do think that this is just a, another example of the the GOP acting like a somewhat of a cornered raccoon, right, burying its teeth because they're feeling trapped and desperate about uh, what the demographic future of Georgia looks like, if not in the state. Um, I do think that that taking this stance uh, does more to activate Democratic opposition than, than rally its own base, if you weigh it with a, a, a cost-benefit analysis. I, I feel like uh, a lot of Democratic Voters are going to say, you, you want to take my drop boxes away? Well, that's not going to stop me from voting. And I think that uh, traditionally disenfranchised black voters, for example, are, you know, who, which are used to hurdles being put in front of them are going to say, that's nothing. We got this. Or, or young voters as well that, you know, that really see this as being uh, the an election, cycle 2022 and 2024 uh that they can really have a big impact on so you know i think it's a mixed bag and i don't think that it's uh, smart politics actually Tamar? at
0: this at the same time i don't think this is something that that people should ignore or dismiss butch miller is still the senate pro tem or senate president pro tem um, he does not have to step down from that position because he's running for lieutenant governor. Um, and so as one of the most powerful Republican leaders in the state Senate, um, you cannot ignore this.
1: Um, tomorrow, I'm, I'm sorry, Riley, real quick. Uh, we should say Butch Miller believes that one of the reasons this bill is necessary is he says there were counties in, in the state that did not follow the rules that were established, uh, having cameras, 24-hour surveillance of uh, the drop boxes, that sort of thing. That's part of his rationale for this.
2: Well, I mean, it goes along with the rationale that there was all this widespread fraud, right? So it's kind of this issue of how are Republicans going to mobilize their base? And if half their base thinks that elections aren't, or two thirds of their base think that elections aren't um, valid, they're going to lean into that um, instead of pushing away from it.
1: All right. Um, I think if you've been listening to uh, uh, our station this morning, you know that we're having a final couple of days of fundraising as we enter. Uh, uh, 2022, as we come to the end of the year. It's been a great year for us at GPB Radio and certainly here at Political Rewind. Um, I, I, I was thinking about the fact that we're now about to finish two years of having expanded this show to five days a week, live every morning at nine, you know that we have a repeat broadcast at two in the afternoon. That was a big commitment. And there were many times when I thought as we were planning this move, that, that we would have a hard time filling the show with political news. Well, that hasn't proven to be the case. If anything, uh, it was a really important decision in these extraordinary times in Georgia politics to go to two day, two, five days a a week. And so, with that said, uh, for those of you who have been supporting us financially, we are so grateful. It's what allows us to have this expanded schedule. If you have not had a chance, but you like what we're doing, even if at times you think that I've said something, that you write me a note uh, saying, how could you possibly say that, uh, Bill Nygut? That's fine, too. Criticism is all part of the process. But we would love it if you could join us in supporting GPB Radio, and here's how you can do it gpb's riley bunch the ajc's tamar hallerman and mundo hispanico's renee alegria with us today on political rewind by the way we only have one more pledge break in this show and plenty of time for conversation um, I, I do want to give you a news update. Benjamin Payne, who's the new GPB bureau chief down in Savannah, has just uh, sent out a tweet reporting that uh, Judge Wamsley, Timothy Wamsley, has now announced the sentencing date for uh, the uh, the McMichaels and Roddy Bryan. Uh, It'll take place on January 7th. Their convictions mean that they're sentenced to life in prison. But Wamsley will have the opportunity to decide whether after 30 years of serving, they are eligible for being paroled. So that's a story. And then, of course, the uh, federal uh, 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 civil rights uh, hate crimes case comes up after that. Um, So everybody's going to be watching both of those things very, very closely. Uh, Tamar, Uh, It appears that Georgia on Thursday is going to be able to take pride in having attracted a major uh, vehicle manufacturing uh, company, Rivian, which manufactures electric trucks, is is apparently going to build a plant uh, out in Rutledge, which is about an hour east of Atlanta. And we should point out that this is a big coup for Governor Kemp, who's expected to be making that announcement, because since Kia located down at West Point, we haven't been able to win any of the other bids for manufacturing plants. We do have the Porsche headquarters and the Mercedes headquarters, but those aren't job intensive uh, uh, businesses. Um, So getting this manufacturing plant is a big deal economically for the state, tomorrow.
0: Yeah, absolutely. i um, expected to employ about 8,000 people at full production. Um, but not only that, a lot of suppliers um, end up kind of popping around in the area around a lot of these manufacturers, as we saw with with Kia. And I mean, not only that, but it's something politically that's kind of a feather in the cap of, of a lot of these politicians that bring uh, these big economic development deals to to states. And especially as Uh, Governor Kemp runs for reelection in a tough primary fight against David Perdue, uh, you know, a seasoned business executive in his own right. It's 100 percent something Brian Kemp will be able to discuss as a huge accomplishment of his while
1: in office. Um, Renee, we don't know – I don't think – I haven't read that we know exactly what kind of tax credits, what kind of tax breaks Rivian is getting uh, for this. And that's always something that uh, uh, critics of our taking – having big tax breaks to attract business are – jump on quickly. But the AJC also had a piece. Scott Truby went out to Rutledge. There are people out there – who are not happy that their semi-rural community is about to be the site, apparently of a huge manufacturing plant.
3: Yeah. Listen, I, the, the plan is supposed to be almost 2000 acres. Um, It's going to have a huge uh, impact to the area. It's it's backed by Amazon who has apparently contracted to purchase these, these vehicles. Um, But I, you know, when, when you, when you Think about the irony of uh, e-vehicles, um, environmentally friendly modes of transportation, potentially destroying thousands of acres of farmland and putting, you know, small farmers' livelihoods in jeopardy. You, you, you just can't help but think about the pros and, of course, the cons of,
1: of this deal. Um, of course, Riley, this is always the battle, isn't it? You know, let's preserve what we have. Let's not, let's not ruin and destroy a way of life that's existed for, you know, in some cases, hundreds of years uh, for uh, progress. It, it, is, it is kind of like one of the great battles of our time.
2: Well, I mean, exactly. I was going to say as a tale as old as time, right? And I I don't know how many people know this, but before I came to Atlanta, I worked at a very small newspaper in Boise, Idaho. And when we were having a giant developmental boom, this was a story we were covering every day, right? You know, rural residents um, are not happy with uh, giant projects. From the state like this, and so sometimes things that are wins on in terms of the state's industry are they do bring jobs, but they do you know negatively impact the areas and that they come into. and And I think that an also important thing in that is you don't always see those negative impacts for a while, but you see the positive impacts of the state coming in right away. Um, So it it is a win for Kemp, but down the road, will it come back? You know, it's something that you'd have to watch in terms of the growth in the, the the community.
1: All right. Um, so we'll watch the for the announcement on uh, Thursday uh, and see how that all plays out. And we'll watch the citizens of Rutledge who are, um, unfortunately for them, probably fighting a losing battle to try to do anything about this. Um, let's move on to another story. Uh, Riley, while the ball's been in your court, uh, David Perdue, when he announced his candidacy for governor, uh, said one of his major Uh, uh, initiatives was going to be to eliminate the state income tax. There are other Republicans on the ballot next year who have said they, too, want to eliminate the income tax. But, Riley, uh, that's a $14 billion hit on state revenues. And so far, we really haven't seen anybody with suggestions for how they'll make up those revenues.
2: And I mean, this is money that goes toward things like K 12 schools and public health in a time of COVID, right? And uh, mental health programs and prisons. And I think it's important also to mention the um, Republican that filed a bill to get rid of state and tone tax in the Senate, is, in the state Senate, is someone that we have heard from earlier in the show, which is Butch Miller, right? Um, so we are seeing the likes of Butch Miller, um, David Perdue, these um, far right. GOP candidates, they're pushing this idea. And the first thing I think of is, oof, that's going to be rough for the, bu- the budget committees during the during the legislature, right? So how will they make up for that loss? I don't know. And think about, you know, they haven't even restored cuts to the fully funding QBE education formula, right? So they're losing this huge, huge chunk and they still have a lot of cuts across state agencies. Uh,
3: were they? Listen, I, yeah, no, I have to uh, uh, say that, uh, you know, just kind of echo what Riley said about, This paying for, you know, K through 12 school, uh, you know, public health, uh, like Riley said, I mean, right now with Omicron being what it is, it is a little scary. And, you know, Georgia has a terrible record with government spending. Uh, We rank 49th nationally uh, with levels of of revenue raised per person. And I think that uh, uh, something like this is not going to do
1: anything to uh, have us move from 49th to 48th. Tomorrow, uh, Tamar, I really was not intending, I'm not trying to, you know, beat up on Butch Miller during this show today. But he's very out front with the way he's expressing his opinion on major issues as he uh, runs his campaign for lieutenant governor. And he was quoted in terms of this elimination of the state sales tax as saying, taxation is theft, pure and simple. I, that's a kind of remarkable statement Given that our entire country is built on taxes, the contributions of people in this country to um, make sure we have enough money to pave f- for schools and roads and all of the other things that our tax money brings us.
0: I don't know. I'm a little less surprised. I remember when I was coming up as a cub reporter during the tea party movement, and that was often, um, something that, that we heard from, from them as well. And look, it's a great rallying cry for the base. Um, it's kind of a sexy thing to say what's less sexy and harder to explain in a 30 second political ad is why the government does need taxes for certain activities, why it's important for things like maintaining the state's AAA bond rating. And it's harder as a Republican to have to be the one to defend it. Uh, you heard from Terry England, um, you know, the, the head of the uh, House Appropriations Committee who tried to explain in this article my colleague James Salzer wrote uh, about why it's so important. He talked about why the mix of the, the 5.75% income tax, and we have about a 4% sales tax, why it's been so helpful to the state to be able to kind of maintain what we have in terms of our in terms of our bond rating. And look, we still are going to need schools, we still are going to need to incarcerate criminals criminals and pay for parks and health care and stuff. So, um, you know, the, that's the the thing that's missing. You know, people want to get rid of the income tax, but no one's talking about how you're going to make up for that money.
1: Yeah, a dramatic increase, uh, or, or if you eliminate the income tax, you you m- most likely are going to have to have a dramatic increase in the sales tax, which we all know is a, a regressive tax that certainly hits lower income uh, individuals uh, harder than anyone else. So we'll watch how it all plays out, because as you point out, Tamar, this isn't um, a unanimously uh, embraced position by Republicans. People like Terry England say, we really don't want to head in that direction, and that's important. So uh, we'll, we'll watch it as it goes forward. Um, one other uh, note about the legislature, um, Riley, uh, Michelle Au the Democratic senator uh, from Johns Creek uh, was kind of, she, she lost her district. It, the lines were drawn in, in her district that make it much more likely a Republican could win. And uh, she's decided she's going to instead run for the House. And one of the reasons it's worth pointing out, I think, is that you can draw somebody out of a district, but you can't necessarily eliminate their ambitions to, to continue to be in public service. And uh, they're finding a way to do it, Riley.
2: And they can't eliminate, you know, the people that support her, right? And that's the first thing I thought of. I'm like, wow, wait, great fuel for the people that support her is this store, this headline of GOP redraws. So first Asian American woman in state Senate can't be in it anymore, right? So it, it was definitely a smart move for her to move over to the house in the district that she'll more easily win and, you know, keep up her, her career.
1: All right, let's do this. Let's get to our final pledge break of the show. A few other items I'm really looking forward to taking up when we come back. Uh, Renee, I really want to hear your take on an article that The Hill posted the other day uh, in which they described Democrats as being terribly concerned they are losing Hispanic votes. Um, We'll talk about that and more when we come back. But in the meantime, uh, here's how you can, in these final days of 2021 help support political rewind and all the other programming you listen to on GPB Radio. Mm. Renee Alegria, as CEO of Mundo Hispanico Digital, you certainly are in a position to have your <laughs> finger on the pulse of what Hispanic voters uh, may be thinking about, which is why I thought of you immediately when I read the piece in The Hill. Uh, uh, reporting that Democrats in Washington are starting to get a little bit nervous about the fact they may be losing support of of a group of voters, Hispanic voters, who have usually supported Democrats. And of course, we've been hearing this beyond the Hill. There have been a lot of concerns by Democrats about Uh, The fact that Hispanics are starting to drift away. We should point out, Renee, President Biden did win 63 percent of that vote in the 2020 race, 30 percentage points ahead of President, uh, then President Trump. But the Wall Street Journal poll uh, just taken found that only 44 percent of Hispanics said they'd vote for Biden if the 2024 election were held today. So, uh, Renee, weigh in on your thoughts on this
3: uh it's a it's a really complex issue you know i mean uh you've heard so many folks talk about how the latino vote is not a monolithic block that we are comprised of various uh regions various countries of origin each with a narrative that drives how we vote today as american voters uh it, it it is very unique um you know, when when you do take a look at the Biden numbers, though, I mean, he, he's he's his approval rating right now is not high across the board. Right. So I think that needs to be taken with a grain of salt. Uh, Biden's win, however, of 30 uh, percent over over Trump in 2020, you know, what was a, was a marker of, OK, for many Democrats, we still got this. However, there were setbacks all through the nation. Uh Primarily in uh, the Rio Grande Valley in Texas, where you saw South Texans just say, no, we're, you know, we're voting for Trump. Um, You know, when you take a look at at how Latinos vote, you know, the the, the drive of voting locally on issues that affect them in any particular region, uh, you you have folks... um, you know, advising Democrats who should be worried uh, that they, you know, they, they tend to centralize um, Democrats. And I think that you can't do that when you are appealing to the Hispanic vote. Uh, when you do take a look at the numbers, um, however, and I think this is something that, this is why Democrats uh, are nervous. Um, you know, the, the, the Latino population is now, according to last year's census, uh, roughly 62 million strong, and that's uh, folks believe that's a wildly underestimated number because of the the lack of participation that that Hispanics had with the census and the fear COVID etc. In in Georgia, bringing it back to to this state, uh, we number about 10.6 million uh, in last year's census, a 31% rise over the census previous in 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 2010, uh, and if you take a look at the general population, um, which rose 10%, it it's rising three times the number. Right, so you can see how uh, Republicans, Democrats, those who are able to to really cater and and message to our needs regionally are going to be is going to be the the party that that wins our vote. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, but, Renee, correct me if there's been a, a, a dramatic increase. One of the problems has been to get uh, Hispanic voters in the state of Georgia to turn out at the polls to register and to actually vote. How has that improved in the last couple of election cycles?
3: It, it, it's, imp- it's improved. I mean, I'm, I'm not going, I'm going to be the first one to say that there needs to be more done uh, within the Hispanic community to get the vote out and and we certainly are trying you know civic participation is the hallmark of any 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 vibrant democracy um i think that in the in the last few um election cycles you, you saw a climate of fear of a lot of folks getting out to vote um and that that's unfortunate and 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 you can you can trace it through the if, if we follow the presidential leadership and elections how the democratic. Uh, how how Latinos have either kind of shifted to and away the Democratic uh, Party. The Clintons, you know, Latinos were in love with the Clintons. Um, I mean, they had the Latino vote uh, wrapped when Hillary Clinton ran for for office. I mean, she was polling above like 80 percent with the Hispanic vote. Um, Obama. He, you know, he was known by so many in the in the uh, in the Latino community as the deporter in chief because he mm-hmm. really ramped up deportations across the country. And that was a stark uh, differential from George W. Bush, who was really embracing of a- Latinos and thus got a large percentage of the vote. Yeah. Ran for- George
1: <laughs> W. George W. Right. won about 40 percent of the his Hispanic vote in his uh, second uh, run for office. Riley, it does strike me. Um, first of all, I'm awfully glad that Renee reminds us that Hispanics aren't a monolithic voting bloc. I mean, that's just such an important thing to uh, point out because if you don't say that, you uh, risk uh, uh, being reductive in a way that's uh, that, that is uh, in in fact really insulting to the Hispanic community. But you know what's interesting to me about this is that Democrats have a problem communicating their message. I'm talking about national Democrats now on every front. You know, they just have not been able to get a unified message and so many issues out to uh, voters right now.
2: Yeah, and things like immigration talk about an issue there, right? Um, And with Kamala Harris and the controversy of her going to the border Mm -hmm. and all these things. And, you know, one of the things I think about with this is, approval ratings for president is going to go up and down across the board in different demographics. But this is something that if I was on U.S. Senator Reverend Warnock's team, I would be thinking about, right? You know, he is up for re-election. We have had this boom um, in the Latino population in Georgia that mirrors the national population. And this is a group that Democrats in Georgia have a hard time reaching out to and getting to the polls. And, and, you know, that's where I would be concerned if I was in Georgia politics right now is how do you reach mm-hmm. these votes? And talk about your campaign separate from what the president is doing to get them to the polls in Georgia.
1: You know, Tamar, I, it strikes me that what the Hispanic community needs is a, a Fair Fight-style organization. I mean, it was Stacey Abrams, of course, and her team who were able to mobilize in bigger numbers than ever African-American voters uh, to uh, turn out in 2018 and bring her close to winning the governorship. Uh, the Hispanic community, to the best of my knowledge, uh, you know, n- n- doesn't have that, quite that leadership, which is probably something Renee can talk about, but before he does, just weigh in on this, tomorrow.
0: Yeah, I mean, there are certainly groups that are trying, especially in places like Gainesville, that have seen just a rapid expansion in the Latino population over the last decade or so. Um, Something that really jumped out to me in um, in this story by the Hill, and I think it's a really um important thing for for democrats like you said there you know latinos are are not a monolith and i think sometimes democrats can take them for granted and this is something that congressman ruben gallego from arizona who's a, a senior member of the congressional hispanic caucus talks about kind of the danger for democrats is that republicans don't need to win latinos as a giant block but what they have to do is just strip away 5% or 7% of um, support from Latinos that would otherwise go to Democrats to be able to win nationally. And I think that's the fear for, for Democrats. If a Republican candidate emerges who maybe has a message that really resonates with Latinos, all you have to do is kind of chip away at that block of support. And that could be enough to really swing an election. And Donald Trump, Rene, I th- you know, as, oh, go ahead.
1: Please fail this. No, no, please go ahead.
0: But Donald Trump, as much as he, you know, truly made strict border um, control kind of a a central part of his, um, you know, his strategy, he also said a lot of things that I think appealed to a lot of Latinos, especially men living in border states. And that's what we saw in places like Laredo, Texas.
3: Renee? Yeah, listen, Ruben Gallego from Arizona uh, says you know what what so many of us in the hispanic community know i mean it, it's, you just need a little bit to win the whole pie and you know it, democrats have taken uh latinos for granted for solo and i think that you know when it comes to like you know reaching out to us every presidential election and then forgetting about us only to say hello during hispanic heritage month is You know, rings really false. And we know this in in the Hispanic community, I think I think that the Republican Party has done a, a better job with smaller, consistent messaging. And therefore, that's how they're actually peeling
1: these small percentage points away from the larger pie. Um, I do think that it is what Tamar said is so important, uh, Rene, that it requires such a small slice of the Hispanic vote uh, for Democrats to not be able to hold an election. Five to seven percent. And it strikes me that if Republicans are doing a better job communicating with the Hispanic community, that's a realistic possibility. Is immigration, though, the key issue or, or is that, too, just an oversimplification?
3: It's it's an oversimplification. <clears throat> Obviously, you know, m- most Hispanics in, in the U.S. have an immigrant story. There's, uh, you know, the, the generation that immigrated to the U.S. and the subsequent generations that find themselves living as Latinos in America, right? But I think the rhetoric around immigration reform policy, how you deal with immigrants locally, can get very heated, and you get you get language that is offensive or just downright not educated, and and that certainly riles us up, right? Um, and then of course you do just have this this scare tactic, you know. You say immigrant, and then you and in the Hispanic community, we think of rape. we think of you know families being pulled apart at the border, and and that of course riles us up. But really, it's, it's, it's like every every American uh, family and individual. It is about the economy. It is about jobs. It is about making good on our dreams uh, for this American dream. And, you know, we're on the trajectory and path like everyone has been before us. And those those kitchen table issues are are the ones that we listen to most.
1: Uh, which Riley takes us back to what I asked you about a couple minutes ago. Are Democrats figuring out a way to communicate their messaging around those issues?
2: Well, I'd say they have a little bit of work to
1: do, <laughs> especially going <laughs> right.
2: from the federal to the state level.
1: <laughs> uh, we're just about out of time, Riley. Uh, it's probably the last time we're going to see you on the show before the end of the year. Will you be down at the Will we see you down at the Capitol for G P B News doing some reporting once the session begins?
2: Oh, of course. That's my favorite time of the year is 40 days of session.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I remember those days when it was my favorite time as well. Thank you, Riley Bunch, for uh, being with us today. Renee Alegria, uh, always great to have you on uh, the show. And Tamar Hellerman, my Tuesday partner uh, thank you. Again, congratulations on your Salute to Excellence Award from the National Association of Black Journalists. So well deserved. That's it for us today. We're going to give you one more chance during our show today to show your support for GPB Radio. Again, all of you who have already Uh, done that. We're so grateful to you, Natalie Mendenhall, Sam Bermas-Dawes, Jesse Neiswager, and I appreciate the way in which you support this show. If you haven't had a chance to do that, I hope you'll think about it as we take you to the folks who can show you how. I'll be back again with a new show tomorrow. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, and please get a booster shot if that's the last shot in the line you finally need. See you all tomorrow.